and welcome to Always Take Notes. If you're a budding writer, you'll be excited to hear that this week's sponsors are Curtis Brown Creative, the renowned writing school affiliated to the major literary agency. Since launching in 2011, over 160 of their students have gone on to get major book deals, including critically acclaimed authors Bonnie Garmus, Jane Harper and Kirsty Capes. CBC offers a wide range of online writing courses designed to help you no matter what your current skill level is. For people at the start of their writing journey, they have a four-week Creative Writing for Beginners course led by author and founder of CBC, Anna Davis. The course will teach you to unleash the potential of your imagination. You'll gain the confidence to put pen to paper and get to work on a story of your own creation. Plus, all students will be given the opportunity to get individual feedback from one of CBC's expert fiction editors. Visit www.curtisbrowncreative.co.uk to find out more about all the courses on offer. Curtis Brown Creative have provided an exclusive discount for Always Take Notes listeners. You can use the code ATN20 for £20 off the full price of Creative Writing for Beginners or any other four or six week online writing course. Hello and welcome to Always Take Notes. In this episode, we speak to the novelist and screenwriter Irvin Welsh. We spoke to Irvin about the impact of train spotting, about getting into the minds of violent characters, and about why he doesn't have a literary agent. It's a great episode, and we hope you enjoy it. Welcome, Irvin, to Always Take Notes. It's fantastic to have you on the show. Could we start with your new book, The Long Knives, uh, which follows filth and crime? Why did you feel the time was right to return to the character of Ray Lennox? Um, I think, you know, if you're looking quite cynically at it, it was because we'd uh, done crime as a TV show. And um, it was kind of, you know, I wanted to, I thought if I'm going to write a second season, uh, I might as well do it as a book to give myself a template for it. But um, yeah, I got, I, you know, it's like these things, are never, it's never one thing or the other with these things, really. When we started to adapt crime for TV, uh, you get very... Um, you get immersed in the character again. You want to know what kind of happens next, basically. You know, you're just sort of kind of like everybody else, really. So um, I was thinking, well, what could happen next? What else could he, could he do? What could we give him to do that would be interesting? But also, what um, what could you give him to do that would kind of further sort of solve his own mystery of his, his past and his kind of coming to terms with what's happened to him? Could you tell um, listeners who aren't familiar with him a bit more about about your central character here and about you know how you've gone about exploring Lennox in in this book? Yeah, I mean um, Lennox is just this, he's basically this very kind of um, damaged kind of guy. He's a cop, but only nominally. He's not really sort of um, invested in being uh, a police officer. He's more interested in sort of um, working out some kind of personal sort of vengeance that. Um, against a section of a world like kind of like IE kind of abusers who've uh, treated him badly. So he's he's kind of um he is a kind of avenging angel sort of character rather than a sort of um, a straight annoying cop. What do you like about writing the crime and thriller format both across TV and in novels? It makes writing something quite it may, it's quite an you know uh in some ways it's in some ways, it's an easier thing to write than sort of standard kind of literary fiction. Um, in other ways, it's more difficult, you know, and it, you know, it's, it's easier because there are kind of certain, there's a lot of certain rules that you have to follow. Uh, you, so you've got a kind of framework basically before you even start, which is, um, you know, which is kind of lends itself to a, a three act structure, kind of both in book and TV. 
Um, it's more difficult because it's it's harder in a way to come up with something that is um, that is interesting within that. You know, you're not you you're not kind of sort of um, you're not kind of doing your kind of free form jazz that you do in literary fiction. You get this mess and you try and tease it into something that's a sort of you know that makes sense. Whereas this one, you you know, with this kind of thing, you're much more um, you're much more focused and much more on the uh, you know on what you have to do and where you have to go with the character. Uh, and you're much more kind of you have you much you have much more of a notional audience in mind basically when you do this kind of thing. With other crime writers we've had on, I'm thinking particularly of Ian Rankin and Val McDermott. A big point for them has been research and how how they go about accessing the world of law enforcement and things like that, or or choose not to, and uh, and also at what stage in their process they do that research. And I know Rankin told us that. He had this kind of change early in his career from doing loads and loads of research and then writing to to turning it the other way around because he said that in the end you would spend months looking into stuff that didn't end on the floor. I mean, what what is your process there in terms of getting the material and getting into that world? I'm not really good at researching. Um, I tend to um, I tend to just write the thing and then look at you know what what I need to um, to authenticate or not. You know, I mean, I, I like the idea that this is not. The real world. I'm not trying to make it into to any kind of sort of facsimile of the real world. It's just totally out my imagination. So I like kind of doing things like misnaming streets and stuff like that, and kind of built making my own districts and in, in town. Sometimes you know mixing them up with the real places and all that. So I think that's that's part of the fun for me. You know, so I'm not massively so um, driven to authenticating sort of things like that but um i think procedures i think it's like um certain processes and procedures that you know that basically that kind of um cops kind of undertake and do in terms of crime and all that but again i'm not massively um i'm not massively invested in those you know i think that um i think if you know if i can kind of i always think about well what would you know i don't really kind of visit like pathologists and all that kind of stuff and think, well what, what would these guys logically do how would this actually this work out um and i kind of wait for somebody else to tell me well that's not really <laughs> that's not really how it would happen like you know it's easier on tv because you're you're, you're with a, a bunch of people and you've got a kind of you have advisors and all that and sort of consultants uh to keep you right and they're very informative and interesting them um, so i do tend to take notes of them but when i'm writing the novel i just kind of basically want it to be my kind of own prejudices really so who would the people be that you would show it to that might point out something that needs to be changed i think um it's usually at the editing stage you know the editor will say well you know is this they'll go through it and say well this isn't really right this wouldn't happen and um and can you change this? And I'll sort of go, oh, do we have to? And, you know, it's like, I, I kind of, you know, the, the way I, I kind of perceive it, it's kind of real to me, you know, like, you know, they say, well, it won't be real to the readers and all that. So yeah, you, you have that kind of trade-off, basically. I was thinking also of an interview with David Baldacci, who doesn't write straight crime, but is, is sort of firmly in that thriller mode. And he, he put its appeal in a kind of moral framework. He said, look, like in the real world, people do bad stuff and get away with it all the time. And what he wants to construct is a kind of environment of, of just desserts that, that provides that uh, that kind of resolution, which he thinks is, a, is something that readers find very satisfying. I mean, you're, how do you feel about, about you've mentioned this avenging angel idea, but the kind of moral landscape that you're creating? 
Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, you, you have to show the consequences of, you can show extreme behaviorism, but you have to show the consequences of that behavior on the person who's perpetrating it and also the, the people who are uh, subject to that kind of behavior. So, you know, I think that that's to me is the sort of, the, you know, the moral imperative of it. Um, you, you needn't necessarily resolve anything to the satisfaction of, um, of society in general. And I think that um, as long as, um, you know, as long as people can, can see that um, it's not so much like about, you know, an individual as such or about kind of the bad behavior of an individual. It's about the, to me, it's all, it's all the, the kind of daft decisions that we make and all the, you know, the constraints on our choices and, and the, the way that we get kind of, um, the way the world traps us and forces up these bad decisions on us a lot of the time, you know, and we're struggling to, you know, we're in the dark and we're struggling for the light switch. And I think, you you know, you can show as much darkness as you like, but you have to show people kind of going towards the light switch or at least coping for it. So when it comes to plotting, are you more character-led rather than sort of creating an outline ahead of time? Do you kind of try and immerse yourself in the sort of head of the character and see where their decision-making takes you? Yeah, I mean, you, I mean I'm more character led than I'm plot led, but you have there comes a time when you have to sort of um you know, you have to get literally get onto the drawing board and you have to sort of start pinning stuff to the wall and uh, and look at how this is all working out or how it isn't working out. Um because you do have to have a kind of um <clears throat> you have to have a story that uh, that grips people and that you know and that can be generated from the character, but you know, there are times where you have to sort of um start to 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 kind of craft and chip away at that a little bit to make it to, just to make it flow. We wanted to come back to the long knives in due course, but can we at this stage roll back to to your early life and to your interest in storytelling as a child? And we saw this this line that you'd said it was you know, growing up surrounded by storytellers, your dad and your brother, and then and then this idea of being within this Celtic oral storytelling tradition, and then also the the role of pubs when you got older. Could you unpack that for us a bit? Yeah, I mean, I think that. Uh, it, you know, it is a sort of environment, or it was an environment. Um, I think I don't think a lot of people do that now. Uh, but you know, I think the the thing they still do kind of you know sort of um, tell tales and pubs and all that sort of stuff. And I think that's um, it's part of social life, and it's very much um, part of the you know it's, it's part of British social life in general. But it's very much um, particularly pronounced in sort of you know that that Celtic oral storytelling tradition in Scotland. So it's you, you grow up surrounded by. Kind of people that are always anxious to tell a tale. I mean, I was in the the pub the other day there with uh, a bunch of pals, and they were just, um, you know, they're, they're all storytellers. Like they, they don't write them down, but they're, you know, as much as much storytellers as I am, basically. And you've also said that to be a good writer, you have to be a good reader. Were you a voracious reader as a as a youngster? Um, yeah, I mean, I got to it quite late. I mean, I kind of, um, I was sort of in my teens, really, sort of uh, about kind of 17, 18, before I really took an interest in fiction. And uh, I just went crazy for it. Then you know, I just sort of, uh, I just read everything that I could. And in that environment you're growing up with, with quite low, high levels of deprivation and things like that, how were you getting access to books? I was quite fortunate because, well, what happens? And um, if, you, you know, if you're brought up in a council scheme, there's not, a great deal of space and you know you don't have you don't have um you don't collect books you don't have bookcases and stuff like that but books tend to circulate you know it's like um one person will have a copy of something that will be a kind of cool book and it will just circulate around with your pals and all that and um i mean my, my uncle jack was uh he was a fireman and he was um he did open university degree and uh, i kind of inherited all his books basically so that was kind of interesting. You know, he was doing um, 
like in a literature course and he was going to read the evil law and all this kind of stuff so i was i inherited all that kind of stuff from him and can you tell us now about um the kind of period from your late teens um your kind of early jobs as an apprentice tv repairman and then your kind of entry into the punk scene in london yeah i mean i kind of um i did the city and guilds uh sort of course at telford college to become a apprentice tv technician and uh i mean I, I sort of i was totally unsuited for the job it was like you know and it was, you know, totally unsuited for most jobs and i think that's how you that's how you become you know a writer or a musician or whatever it's because you, you're not really a nine-to-five type person but you know uh, and uh, I, I went down to London to, uh, I mean, I was fortunate that I had relatives in London and um, I was used to going down there in the summer holidays. So it was a kind of home from home for me. So uh, it was great when all this stuff was kicking off down there in the late 70s. And so, I, you know, it's like a great thing to be part of. You meet a lot of people in that environment that, uh, you know, some, some of them are kind of still friends to this day and some of them can. You meet a lot of very sort of creative and interesting people um right through punk and right through acid house so uh yeah i mean uh it's it's really really lucky it was kind of the best thing that i did was going down and getting into that scene is it correct that you had this experience getting electrocuted and that was a bit of a impetus to take a different direction yeah it wasn't really an impetus to take a different direction but it did um sort of uh, helped me with uh, a book I wrote called Marabou Stop Nightmares when the guy was in a, a coma. I mean, I wasn't in as seriously sort of um, ill as that guy, but, uh, well, you know, I was sort of out for the count. It's like, kind of a bit like being under general anaesthetic when you sort of, um, you have all these mad kind of sort of dreams and, you, you know, and, and then you're back into a sort of reality. So I wanted to get to that kind of, um, you know, I wanted to use that sort of um, split levels of consciousness, basically. Could we move on now to the kind of path to publication of Train Spotting? When did you decide to write it and how did you go about doing it? I read somewhere that um, you gave yourself 18 months once you'd sort of alighted on the idea to complete it. Yeah, I mean, I kind of sort of, I mean, I, I was, I failed as a musician and I tried to, to sort of do things in bands and, um, and the, you know, it wasn't really going anywhere. And I thought, well, you know, you, you, you've written a lot of ballads, basically, which are just stories, you know, without, you know, I thought, try writing these stories without music and, you know, don't think about them being, as being set to music. Uh, just write them, basically. And uh, I'd kind of written a lot of, um, I'd, I'd started to kind of keep a journal and kind of was just, just like all, like a diary with all different sort of little kind of stories and sort of nonsense in it and doodlings and all that. And I thought, well, there's some interesting stuff there, at least. I mean, I don't know if it was interesting, but I kind of find it, found it interesting. Um, so uh, I just uh, I started to take stuff out of that and uh, to, to kind of use that. And I realised that I was writing in different voices, basically. You know, there were voices that were coming through. And I thought, well, who are these voices? What are they saying? And all that? Who, who, what, what kind of characters can I flesh out from, from these voices? Uh, so it just started from there, really. And is it right, was it at this period that you had this experience getting injured on a bus to a football match and then got a compensation payment that you were able to flip through some houses to, was that at this point that that gave, gave you a bit of financial space yeah, to focus on the book? Yeah, that was um, that kind of, um, that gave me a bit of direction really. It was like another, I think these things do, you know, I think these these are the kind of events that you think to yourself, like, God, I've got out of jail here a little bit. I've got a sort of, um, I've got to think about what I'm doing in my life. Uh, and uh, yeah, it was a sort of, it was a, it was a kind of interesting thing that happened to me because I did get compensation, well, not a great deal of money, but it was enough to get me to, you know, to buy me a small flat 
uh, I've got a deposit on a small flat in uh, in Amherst Road in Hackney, and then um, it, you know it was like the property was going pretty crazy in in uh, North London at the time, so it was, I was able to sort of um, to get you know to sort of make a bit of cash by doing that. Um, and in terms of writing in uh, dialect, um, I was interested to see that you've kind of compared vernacular the vernacular to kind of a musical rhythm. Could you unpack that idea for for listeners? Yeah, I mean, I think at the time when I was writing, I was I was raving a lot. I was going out to these big warehouse parties and um, to the you know the parties and farms with sound systems and all that. I started to get involved in promotion of uh, these parties uh, and a bit of DJing as well. You know, so I was like. Um, I was immersed in music and was specifically immersed in the 4-4 beat, the idea that, that everything had this sort of, had this bit of funk to it. And, and I, I liked to, I liked to kind of, um, I, I almost wanted to write in that kind of rhythm so that people would turn over the page. And I thought, you know, and, and they would just feel that kind of, the, the music in it, you know. And I always thought that, um, you know, the oral storytelling tradition, you know, was very rhythmic. It was very sort of, um, it has almost a poor four beat on it, you know. So that was um, that I wanted to try and replicate that. So I thought the vernacular was much easier than standard English to do that, you know, because it's um, I mean, English is a great language, but it's very much you know an imperialist kind of controlling language. It's all kind of weights and measures and sort of pounds and pence and stuff like that. Uh, so I wanted something that was a bit funkier, and um, I felt that I feel that vernacular and slang is much is much more like that basically. So. Uh, uh, that was the basis of um, of what I wanted to write, and it was also, you know, the characters were coming to me with that voice. It wasn't, you know, it was, seemed a bit pretentious to kind of sort of um, to do it in standard English. Uh, so um, yeah, uh, from there I went on to I thought, well, you know, I've got the the beat now. How do I get the effects on top? So I started doing all the, the typographical experiments. But, you know, not so much in transporting, but a little bit, but mainly with the other books. Um, and I start to kind of have you know have words falling off the page and have kind of like <clears throat> multi experiment with typeface and um, you know just just mess around really uh, to to get that sort of um, dislocating element you know that would that would sort of um, be on top of the the four four beat. And was it at this period pre transporting that you were also working in local government? And if so, how how did that element of your life fit with the music and with the developing on? your fiction with a bit of difficulty really because there wasn't a great deal of time to to do all those things and i mean i did i did a lot of writing when i should have been working basically but one of the things that working for local government one of the things that did give me is um the ability to smash out loads and loads of words because what happens with um if you write a report that the council have to to read and and kind of vote on you have to summarize it in one page in the top page because that's that's all they're going to read you know they're not going to read that but um all that stuff, they don't, you know, they just won't look at it at all, you know, but you have to have it. Um, and the more, the more, um, the bigger the report, the more chances of getting passed. So if you really want a piece, of, a piece of sort of local kind of legislation passed through the council, you have to just knock out words and knock out words and knock out words. And that's, you know, that, that became quite um, adept to just knocking out, you know, sort of um, words, which are a lot of nonsense, really, you know, a lot of, absolute shite but um get the words down you know and that's that's one of the things that um it stood me in good stead is the ability to just knock out stacks and stacks of words because um one of the things i realized as a writer that you've got to do quite a lot of bad writing before you get to good writing you know you have to get to you have to dig through this sort of um through this cold face before you get to a kind of sort of rich seam of something that's usable um and i think the ability to do that 
is a really good thing for a writer, and that's what I kind of got from working in local government. We like to lift the lid on the podcast on the kind of writing industry as a whole. So once you'd bashed out your manuscript, how did you get about set about getting it published? Did you find an agent, or did you just go straight to publishers? No, I've never had an agent. Um, I've just uh, I've done it all myself basically, and um, I was fortunate because uh, there's a guy at uh, Cape at the time was Robin Robertson, and uh, he was the managing editor there. He was Scottish, and he was had a massive interest in Scottish fiction, particularly this new wave. The Scottish fiction that was coming out, people like Duncan McLean and Barry Graham, and um, then later kind of Alan Warner and Kevin Williamson, and uh, so there was like a there was a sort of um, a bit of a sort of um, movement there, basically in a sense, and um, and I got to know these people, and it was like through through um, basically through Duncan that uh, I got in touch with Robin, and Robin got in touch with me basically, and I published a couple of uh, short stories and. And he said, that these are great stories. Have you got anything else? I said, I've got a novel, which was a lie, basically. I never really had a novel at the time. But um, he said, oh, I'd love to see it. I said, well, I'm just still working on it. I'll be ready in a, a couple of months. Like, you know? So I thought, I better batter all this stuff into some kind of shape. You know? So um, it incentivised me to do it, to, to finish the, the novel. Well, you know, that I was kind of embroidery kind of working on. Fascinating to hear that, because I think in the entire history of the podcast, and we've had a lot of novelists on, I think you're the only... Un- novelist with unagented novelists that we've we've ever had and a lot of writers talk about you know getting an agent as a, a critical first step and and things like that and i'm fascinated as to like how did you feel that you were you were kind of able to to fight feel your way through both the kind of technical contractual stuff and the sort of fighting your own corner and getting getting a fair deal because presumably you must you must have had agents kind of coming knocking on your door and offering their services yeah i mean i, I you know i kind of um i knocked them all back i thought i'll just do this myself um because um again working in local government you know i was involved in a kind of the competitive tendering so it was, it was i was used to sort of looking at contracts and um uh and i was also i was doing an mba at the time so i had quite a you know sort of um kind of decent business head on me uh and you know you just i mean all you do you know with these things you just ask for more money every time until they say no basically <clears throat> and um and then you kind of um you know you you sort of you go back and you hope that they'll kind of um they'll reconsider and all that so yeah i mean i think um i probably would have been quite a decent agent actually if uh if i'd been an agent myself like but um and i think nowadays i mean we're going back 30 years at different times and i think now it'd be quite difficult to to operate without an agent. If it was a new writer starting out now, I'd be looking for a decent agent, probably. But um, back then, you know, you could get away with it. And I've kind of gotten away with it since then. You know, I think maybe I should get somebody and all that. But it's, you know, I think the, the fewer people you have to deal with, the better, you know. And that's agents kind of sort of, um, you know, you think that sometimes you think, I've got, you know, I've got agents for film and TV and, you know, in, in America and in, in the UK and they're great. Uh, and, um it's, but you know the idea that you kind of you necessary. I think you need you need it in these environments because it's so it is so corporate and it's so kind of factored in. Uh, publishing you probably do need them as well, but uh, I got by without it, so I've kind of um, I've stuck to that since basically. And when Trainspotting was published in 1993, how quickly did it sell, and what difference did the film adaptation make on sales? Yeah, I mean, it, it kind of it sold quite well from word of mouth. But the the funny thing was, I had the Asset House out um, about six months after it, uh, which is quite a, a short time in publishing terms, you know. So 
I kept pushing them to bring out the acetone. So I think because of the the title and the cover and because the rave culture was big then, the, the acetone actually initially sold more in the first year uh, than train spotting. And um, but when people backed in, you know, backed into train spotting from the acetose, um it seemed there was, you know, there's two things happening. You know, it's like the kind of um, a lot of my pals in Scotland were reading it, and you know, a lot of the kind of like basically kind of people in the prisons were reading it and passing it around and all that. It had a big word of mouth kind of cachet. Uh, but the second people who were reading it were kind of um, a lot of um, old kind of ex-punks and the, the London Cognoscenti who were into sort of now into journalism and sort of uh, broadcasting and all that. And they kind of embraced it and took it on. And that was like, you know, so it's basically sort of um, my kind of two tribes, really, you know, sort of uh, I picked it up picked up on it and then once you get that you know the students follow and then that becomes a sort of become becomes a thing after that what was it like kind of emotionally being at the center of that storm of publicity and then also do, do you think the way that transporting took off as you say kind of word of mouth in parallel but separate communities could that happen today now with with the internet and social media and and stuff like that or do you think that was also a function of its time I think very much a function of its time. I think word of mouth was really important. It was kind of, it was a big thing. It was a real, you could get a real buzz created about something. But, um, you know, it's like, it's, it's, it's very, now it's more of an Instagram sort of media type culture that um, we're into. Uh, and it doesn't quite lend itself to that sort of, um, you know, it's like, a, it's, it's something that's um, a bit less, embedded about it you know you you can you can um you know you're, you're trying to start off that kind of um that sort of avalanche or you know what the americans call the, the sort of water cooler moment you're trying to kind of um, get that kind of thing going but you don't really it's you know it's what people are in the little clusters and the sort of whatsapp groups and all that so you don't you don't really have a sort of um uh a, a kind of broad brush thing until it's like until the, the mainstream media sort of pick up on it. So it is much more difficult now, uh, and um, because it is much more of a top down culture rather than bottom up culture, and it's increasingly like that. So it's very difficult to. Um, I think for for younger writers, it's very difficult because you're expected to write in a certain way. You know, you're almost expected to write into a sort of um, a retail driven marketing hole. You know, there's literally marketing holes on the shelf. So you know, telling you to write. Um, you know, crime or romance or thriller or uh, horror or, you know, sort of, um, uh, you know, or historical fiction. And, you know, you know, when I started out, obviously it was just fiction and non-fiction. So, uh, so this is, a, this has been another thing that's, uh, that, that's that, you know, it's kind of, um, it's changed the way we write, basically. I think another thing is like the, you know, the, the MFA programme, the idea that um, a lot of writers go through uh, a, formal training as writers, which is kind of seems to me quite a strange thing. What did you make at the time of uh, critics um, saying that you felt the, that they felt the novel glamorized drug abuse? Um, it was, yeah, I mean, I thought it was, um, you, you question uh, to what extent people have actually read a book like that, if you think it glamorizes uh, drug abuse. So um, I didn't really take it seriously. I mean, I didn't really take them seriously. Anybody who made a comment like that, I thought, you, you've not read them, but you don't understand what's going on. They've certainly not read the scene with the toilet anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's um, a rule of the podcast that we always ask about money and how it's interfaced with um, people's writing lives. So be as candid or as guarded as, as you want. But, you know, particularly at this moment when transporting exploded and then throughout your 
career, I suppose, both before and after, how has the, the financial side worked and how have you kind of managed in, at that, that part of it? I've been really, really fortunate because all you want to do as a writer is to have the, the chance to write, basically, you know, to just do, to not have to go to work, support your writing. And very few writers get that privilege, you know, and that to me is like, you know, I've, always, I've had that, you know, so I was able to, to basically retire at um, 30 to pursue my, my interests, you know, and um, uh, my hobbies, but, you know, so it was a very privileged position that I've been in and still am in, you know, and for that I'm incredibly grateful. But, um, yeah, it has worked out well, you know, you know, you have kind of uh, projects that are, um, are very, very lucrative and financially successful. Uh, you have other ones that aren't so lucrative and financially successful and you don't really... Um, you basically just, you, you send them out there, you know, whether it's a book or a, a film or whatever, or a TV show, you send it out there into the, the marketplace, you don't know how it's going to do, um, and sometimes it does very well and captures the imagination, other times, it, you know, people just think, well, you know, um, we'll pass on this one and all that, so, you know, that, which is, again, it's fair enough, so over the piece, I've done very, very well financially at the right end, uh, and uh, I've been very fortunate to be able to do that. You released uh, Marabou Stalk Nightmares in 1995, so you know quite quickly after Trainspotting. Some novelists who've had a massive smash hit debut, I know Acid House followed quite quickly after that, so maybe this helped, but was there ever a sense that it was going to be hard to follow up on Trainspotting? You know, creatively, did you struggle to get words on the page or, or not really? Yeah, I did. I had a terrible time. I mean, I, I didn't, you know, I wrote a really shit book after Trainspotting, which I th- was kind of... Um, an experimental novel. Whenever you say to your um, publisher, you're writing an experimental novel, you just see the colour drain from your face and all that. And this, you know, they start, um, they pull away the kind of um, the a la carte menu and put the set menu in front of you, basically. Um, and, uh, you know, the hide the wine list and all that kind of stuff. So when you have the success that I had with the first two books, you think you can do anything, basically. So I kind of did things like, you know, I photocopied my gospel 50 times and put that as, you know, is that these were 50 pages in the book and, you know, nonsense like that. I'd ask somebody to write me a poem about something and stick that in the book and all, you know, it was like, um, it was a mess, basically. It was an incoherent kind of piece of drivel. And um, like Robin, who was my editor at the time, he said, this is just rubbish, it's just nonsense. You know, basically, you know, there's, there's nice bits and pieces in there, interesting bits and pieces in there, but, you know, find, you know, stop showing off, basically. Just find what you want to write about, you know, and think about something you're really passionate about and want to talk about. And, um, and you know, I did. I went back to the drawing board, basically, and I wrote Marabou Stop Nightmares. But in a way, I think that, um, you know, which was probably one of my best novels, maybe maybe my best in some ways, but it wouldn't have come out. And, you know, the, the lesson for me was that um, I shouldn't have tried to publish that nonsense. But I was I was correct to write that nonsense basically because that was you know that kind of enabled and kind of begat that process of writing Marabou's thought nightmares. So um, I think you know you have to sort of um, I think as a writer you have to distinguish between kind of writing and publishing. You know you can sometimes you're you're writing to find what you're writing about basically. Hello, it's Artemis, the producer of Always Take Notes. I hope you're enjoying Simon and Rachel's conversation with the novelist and screenwriter Irvin Welsh. As you may have guessed, it's time for the next instalment of our new segment. This week, we hear from Phoebe Hurst. When Simon and Rachel spoke to Phoebe, she was the managing editor at Vice, but now she's assistant G1 editor at The Guardian. 
and she's going to tell you about a piece of advice she wished she'd had at the start of her career. Sounds a bit obvious, but it is really helpful and easy to lose sight of. I think it's basically just to read as much as you can. I know that when I was starting out, I spent a lot of time, you know, writing pitches, applying for jobs, um, updating my website, researching for stories. And all of that's really important to be a journalist and really part of your job. But just as important as making sure you've got enough input and enough inspiration um, in the things that you're reading. Um, so I, I found that when I, as soon as I kind of carved out time in my week, you know, just an hour in the morning or more in the evenings to just sit and read, ideally not on a screen, um, I felt like my writing improved. I got way more ideas and I just felt a lot more connected to why I wanted to be a journalist in the first place. And one of those reasons was because I really love writing and I really love improving my my craft. And the best way to do that is by reading as much as you can. Um, so, yeah, just not just kind of scrolling through articles on Twitter, which I also am guilty of doing a lot, um, but, you know, reading novels, magazines, um, stuff from outside the UK, um, my local library has a really good thing where you can access free magazines if you have an e-reader. Um, so I can read The New Yorker for free, which is really good. Um, so there's lots of kind of ways that you can access, um, you know, different types of material without necessarily having to spend loads of money on subscriptions. It's just read as much as you can. That was Phoebe Hurst. And if you were interested in what Phoebe had to say, you can listen to our full interview with her via our website, www alwaystakenotes.com. Now back to Simon and Rachel's conversation with Irvin Welsh. Beyond that kind of reflexive criticism that came when Trainspotting came out, what's been the role of, of using drugs in your experience as a writer? We saw that you'd said elsewhere that you felt it had given you an edge. I think not so much the you know the drugs of being you know you don't you, know, you you don't want to be writing when you're on drugs basically you'd rather be just dancing or sort of um, staring at walls or something like that you know but uh, I think that not so much the drugs themselves but the you know and you know not so much the intoxication and the sort of um, and the you know the, the split consciousness and you know that you get uh, you know you're interfering with your own levels of consciousness and you're looking at things in a different way and I think that part of it was useful uh, but I think more useful to me was the kind of people that you meet and the kind of situations you get into sort of adventures you get into you know through all these subcultures that are kind of uh, attached to drugs uh, I think that was quite a that was very useful for me. You said that writing Marabou's Talk Nightmares and, and Filth in the same way was difficult in terms of getting to the head of a protagonist who commits very violent acts and does some pretty despicable things. How do you get into a character's head when they are, you know, doing that sort of thing? Basically, you get the pain that that character's in. Um, and you try to, um, you try to, you know, you think, so this person's in pain, they've made all these terrible choices because of the pain. So you try and understand the pain and the confusion in the sense of being trapped. And then you kind of write from that perspective. Um, to me, it's not so much, the problem is not so much getting into the, the head of characters like that, it's getting out of it. It asks a lot of you just to, to write a character like that. And I think you have to be very careful. You have to manage your kind of life and your relationships very carefully when you embark on a project like that. And I didn't really realize that at the time. You know, I didn't think that um, it's, you know, it kind of spills over or you, if you start writing in that kind of character that um, it's not conducive to sort of good and healthy relationships. So I sort of, um, you know, I, 
one of the things that's been really useful to me is like getting to know actors and um because i remember like um james mcavoy was doing uh filth and he was playing the, the robertson character and um and i thought you know he just give this massively intense performance and he'd go away still in character and he'd go up to his hotel room and um you think you go oh, i'll be down in about half an hour for a, a drink and all that. i thought nah, i'm not going to see james again like no he's 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 going to just lie in bed and stay in character he's going to get up and do this the next again day and then he would come down half an hour later and he would be um like kind of happy kind of go lucky cheerful smiling james mcavoy again like he's left that character up in the room and i was fascinated i was asking him how he did this and you know i've asked other actors how they've done this and all that and um they they actually do you know some of them just do actually de roll they just kind of look at you know they they ask themselves you know they do that thing that actors do like you know as as a three ways you like this character or three ways you're not like this character and you kind of you know you, you give yourself permission to to be yourself again um and i kind of started to do that you know when i write a difficult character uh, i sort of started to sort of um to um to, you know to, to to do that basically to sort of um to orientate uh, myself and my own kind of personal values and morality and trying to try to sort of uh, make sure that I get back to that and I leave the character on the page. Another question that we love to put to novelists on the show is is whether in the vernacular we've, I suppose, developed or stolen, that they're a plotter or a plunger. So whether they're someone who has a narrative worked out in advance or whether they are someone who just dives in and follows their nose or their subconscious. So I think you alluded to earlier getting stuff up on the wall which i wonder that that's the classic screenwriter way but where between those two poles do you fall and is it different for your prose and for your tv projects yeah i mean you know it's like i can see it as a continuum and kind of much more sort of um you know you're much more plot driven in tv shows because that's what they are basically you know and you're much more character driven on and, and you're diving in uh, in the novel but uh you move, you move along that continuum sometimes depending on the um Depending on just how you're feeling or the, the subject matter or what's taking your, your fancy. I mean, um, you know, Margaret Thought Nightmares I had a lot of that plotted out in my head before I actually wrote, you know, and because uh, so that was like, I mean, I was only writing the thing for about five weeks or something like that, but I took, I took you know, it was sticking with me for months and months. Um, and, um, you know, but, you know, uh, a book like Glue would be the very reverse of that, you know, where I sort of, where I had nothing to write about at all, you know, I thought, what am I going to write about? You know, it's like the publisher's one or novel, I should write something. Um, and I started to basically have these guys sitting in this pub and, uh, and, and I thought, I'll make the pub in Germany and I'll make them at the Munich Beer Festival. So I had these guys just rapping about, um, basically, you know, two, you know, three guys joking about another guy's foreskin, basically, which was kind of, you know, assumingly a kind of trivial way to start things, but it kind of got you into the characters, you know, got the, the character, the Juice Terry came from that. It was one of my, my best characters, I think. Uh, and then I um, I sort of, um, I thought, well, you know, what is this about? What are their relationships? And, you know, let's move back 10 years to see what they were like 10 years ago. Uh, so I did that, you know, as a device, basically. I thought, well, let's keep that there and let's move 10 years ahead. And, you know, maybe they're no longer friends. You know, maybe the, the reason, you know, the, the roots of why they're no longer friends uh, is explained kind of not in the present, but in the past, basically, you know. So they've maybe made time bombs for themselves to sort of, um, that have come home to, to sort of roost, basically. Uh, 
And, you know, just, just doing these kind of things uh, generates a great deal of um, of information. You know, you can't do that kind of thing with every book, but it seemed to, you know, you know, and then I actually took them back to being kids, you know, to the five-year-old and thinking, like, um, what was her, what was her life like then? What kind of relationships did they have with their parents and their families and all that? And uh, so I think that, you know, that you can do that, you can generate a great deal of information on this, you know, and that was a very, very character-driven book. But, um, you know, again, if you create these characters and spend a bit of time with them, you know, the, the plot starts to come, you know, the storyline will start to emerge. Is that why some characters recur across books? You know, they'll make a cameo in one and then they'll become a protagonist in their own right. Is that because they've just generated their own their own plots in your head? Yeah, I mean, you think it's, like, it's almost like having a, a set of tools in a box and all that. You think, I might never need this particular kind of screwdriver and then you suddenly see that, um, you know, there's something that, you know, that you've got this unusual kind of sort of... Um, star-headed screw or something like that you, know, you need to sort of uh, get out and all that you know um and i think that um you uh you kind of you know you can go into that you know you think well what have we actually got here that works for this like you know when i when i did crime i wanted it to be about a guy who'd been abused and uh, but who also had some kind of power you know and i thought well you, you know who would have that kind of power a cop would have that kind of power who, who would be attracted to a very kind of you know, serious crimes and that kind of somebody from that background. So I thought, um, I thought about um, you know Lennox's character from Filth, who was a, he was a kind of he wasn't a minor character, but he wasn't you know anything like the main character because was I always thought there's something um, about this character, there's something about him. He, he seems to be a man of secrets. You know, that's what I've sort of um, ascertained from uh, Filth and all that. So I wanted to try and find out what these secrets would be. You know, so. Uh, crime was like an investigation of the character, right? you know, it was like a sort of rather than the actual, you know, the the, the con, you know the conventional murder mystery. It's more, you know, it's, it's you know, it's all that, but it's also about the, you know, an existential thriller. It's about the character and what you know they're they're trying to find themselves, and you know they're trying to solve the mystery of themselves. Which I mean, I think ultimately is what everybody's trying to do. Your books have often, back to transporting, been perceived as shocking by some people do you think that there has been a, a desire to shock either conscious or unconscious in your work and has that changed over your career as a published author yeah i mean i've never really um been massively sort of um never been massively conscious of that of that kind of urge but then you look you look back and you look at the material and sometimes you i'm typing away and i look and i think fuck if I, you know where did this come from? You know, they just write this. What is what is all this? And you have that kind of um, you have that kind of moment, like you know, what's my mother going to think about this? What's my girlfriend going to think about this? And all these sort of kind of, uh, and then you you think, well, that, these are good feelings to have. You know, they're really good. That means it's, you're 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 tapping into something. If you're worried about this kind of social embarrassment of it, like, you know, um, so um, so yeah, I mean, um, I think that obviously there is some kind of um. You know, I think every, every artist, whether they're musicians or writers or painters or whatever, they want to get people's attention, basically. You know, there's, there's a, there's, there is a very narcissistic attention-seeking need that kind of um, underpins all of art, you know, as well as a sort of, um, a, you know, a desire to communicate. You know, there is a sort of, um, there is a kind of sort of, look at me, this is what's happening here thing. But um, hopefully, you know, hopefully it's a, a, you know, a subconscious thing. And I'm not, you know, I'm not massively aware of it in my everyday life. Could we talk now about your playwriting and screenwriting work? Um, how did you first get into that? And how do you find the process of writing in those forms different to novel writing? Uh, I worked with um, 
a guy called Paul Pinson, who was a director in Edinburgh, in Boilerhouse Theatre, we did a thing piece called Head State, which was about the kind of post-rave burnout, really. It was a sort of performance piece. And um, it was an interesting experience for me. I liked working with, you know, I'm, I'm quite a, for, you know, for a, a, you know, writers, are, you know, if you're a novelist, you're on your own, basically, and you're playing God and all that, and it's great, you know, it's great, but it's quite lonely, and I do like working with other people, and you, you do learn a lot when you're working with other people, so um, I got on, I got into theatre uh, from doing that, and um, and I think, they, they, basically, I got into film writing and TV writing uh, through adaptation, you know, through having sort of my stuff adapted and through getting into the, the nuts and bolts of these industries and the processes uh, and, um, you know, finding it uh, quite an interesting thing to do and finding it, you know, it's, it's great when you, you know, because when people want to do, want to, to adapt your stuff for, for screen or stage, um, it's usually because they sort of, um, you know, they're, they're really into it and they like it and all that, but the reasons for liking it are often very different from yours and the perspective on it is very is often very different from yours. And that's incredibly enlightening and you know, it's very stimulating to work with people who have a call, who see things in you, 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 your stuff that you've never seen yourself, basically, and you know, they bring that to your attention. With uh, other screenwriters in particular we've talked to, there's been this division that we've often heard about between the kind of British tradition of a single writer working, maybe getting notes from a producer, but largely kind of being being on their own and this American showrunner writer's room tradition which what have you have you had experience in both those camps and what's your your preference yes I have um and um they you know they, they operate in very very different ways and they're both um they're both uh, you know I think that the, the idea of just getting on with it or just you know you and something else or you and a you know, couple of writers and a producer or you know, as, a, as a writer and a producer um, is is great, and, you know, because you can just get on with it. You can have your, your you can have quite a, a strong voice, basically. And um, uh, but also, it's like I think that the um, the you know the the whole showrunner model, the writers' room model, is also great as well. You know, it just offers um, a different set of opportunities. You know, the opportunity to work with people and learn with and learn from them. So um, you know, I'm quite. I think you. I think that they both have their place in terms of the development of a show. I mean, I, I'm agnostic as to you know which one I would think would be you know be best and which one you know I prefer sort of working. With. I think you get you get a lot from both environments. I think that's fundamental. You know, to to be in a writer is the opportunity to build to work in uh, diverse environments. You've collaborated with Dean Kavanagh on some of your screenwriting projects, including Wedding Bells. How does that partnership kind of work in practice? It's kind of, you know, it's, it's a weird partnership because it's a, we've been at this for a long time and we're kind of, um, you actually, you know, you actually find yourself kind of thinking like each other. You know, it's, it's funny, it's like um, when we're working on something, there's almost like a third person in the room, which is a sort of like um, somewhere where, Dean and I kind of meet and there's a kind of Venn diagram of, you know, when it crosses over and that becomes like a third person in the room and it's almost like um, a third voice in the room and sometimes we only joke, oh, that's, the, you know, that's the, the other voice, basically. Um, but it's great because, you know, we're, we're, we're close friends as well and you have to, you know, you have to have that sort of trust and intimacy um, with uh, someone you can get, you know, we, we sort of, um, we kind of, we let each other go out there and we pull each other back from you know and all that sort of stuff. So we're quite good at um, doing that, but we tend not to overwrite each other. You know, we're, we're quite careful about 
what it is. This you know, we really do give a, a great deal of thought what this piece is, um, and we kind of map out what you know where where this needs to go. So we're much more um, we plan uh, quite a lot. So we don't really you know we have we we will go away and write scenes each, or we'll go away and write episodes each, and um, it's quite interesting because you know that you know, you actually um, you actually forget which bits you've written and which bits he's written because you just there is such a sense of ownership from the whole project. I wanted to ask about the significance of America uh, for you, both professionally and personally. You've lived there in, in Chicago, also in Miami. But thinking about it as a writer who you know broke through with such an association with place, with writing about Scotland and so forth, what has America meant to you and what has it offered you? I think it was, uh, you know, it's it was a great experience. I mean, I've lived 10 years there. I'm still kind of, still there part-time. I've still got a place there. Um, and uh, I think it's just great experience living everywhere, anywhere. Like, you know, I mean, I lived in Holland for a couple of years. I lived in Ireland for five years. And these are great experiences. They're just, you know, the, the, it's, it's, uh, it's a great thing to be able to do as a writer, to live in a different country, basically, you know, because um, you've, um, it, everything, the way you look at the world is completely um, is completely sort of um, turned on its head in a lot of ways. You know, you sort of uh, and you actually get a different perspective on on where you come from. You know, you get you get a massive different perspective on home as a result of being away from home. Um, you know, it's like I think you know you think um, all the the issues about kind of you know Scotland's place in Britain, Britain's place in Europe, and all this sort of stuff. Uh, I was never really that um, bothered about them until I sort of um, started to look at it from a from a kind of almost like a, a an overseas viewpoint. You know, somebody who's not immersed in it, and um, you look at the you look at the kind of you know you look at the, the lunacies of your own society. You know, and we we tend to. Um, we would look at the, the lunacy of somewhere like the United States from Britain and think all oh, this stuff about guns and it's, you know, it's just nonsense and crazy and all this kind of stuff. And then you, you think, well, you know, we have a queen basically <laughs> and, uh, and uh, you know, aristocrats in the House of Lords and stuff like that. And uh, all, practically all our prime ministers have gone to one school. You know? So it's like you think to yourself, well, this is quite nuts as well. You know, how, you know, what, what a weird kind of place we are too. You know, so you do, you do get a different impression from the, where you live from abroad, basically. And I think that filters into your, to your writing. I think it's, um, it's a very, um, it's a, it's a great asset to a writer to be able to travel. We're coming towards the end of our time. So a final question from me. Much has been sort of said about the recurring themes in your work, you know, drug use, class, Scottish identity. I saw someone say that uh, they think you're interested in the exercise of free will. What do you think the kind of themes that you've returned to over the course of your career have been? I think, well, you know, I think most, the, the big theme that keeps coming back to me is that, um, you know, that, like, you know, for example, I don't think Trainspotting is a book about drugs at all. I think it is a book about people trying to adjust to a world without paid work which is where we're all going now. You know, originally that was like the uh, post-industrial working classes that had to make that adjustment. Now it's, you know, professions like journalism, it's, you know, and, uh, uh, and you know, the even things like law are going to kind of be, they're going to feel all that now with the, the information technology and, and the, the whole kind of um, 
robotics and sort of artificial intelligence and all that. So we are in this precipice of um, what you know, what is what are we as people? What are we as human beings? I think that um, if we're not, if work defines us, and we're not sort of paid for, for what we do and what you know, what is uh, what what is the measure of us now? And that's I think this is a, the big existential questions that we're asking. I think that. Uh, it feeds into so much. It feeds into the self, and it feeds into sort of uh, you know mental illness and anxiety and everything like that. You know, so I think we are trying, we've created this very sort of strange zoo that we're in, uh, and it's not really, um, not really kind of um, good for us as humans. It's not really sort of um, great for our species. This kind of world that we're creating, and it's it's putting kind of challenges onto us. And um, so I think that, that that's a great, you know, that's that to me is the recurrent theme of, um, of you know, it's the recurrent theme of my fiction, but so I think it's, it has to be a recurrent theme in all, practically all fiction now, because this is a, the great questions that we face. A couple of um, final questions from me, one kind of broad and one narrow. The broad one is, is what's next? What are your projects you're working on? And the narrow one was, I was interested when you said you lived in Ireland. Do, does Ireland still have this situation for artists and writers where you don't have any income tax? Uh, I think they stopped that now. Um, they did, you know, when I was there, they certainly did. Um, it was, uh, I always remember, it's like because I, I went there because my wife was um, doing a degree there at um, at uh, University College and um, I was there and I, I kind of I remember having a conversation with Roddy Doyle you know that um, and I was kind of um, I was just I was pulling Roddy's leg a bit saying that um, you know you don't pay any tax and the guy who's you know pulling your pound again pays 50 pound pence in the pound for tax you know and he goes yeah yeah that's just you know that's just that's just the way it is that's just the sort of um, what happens and there I was like in Ireland um Maybe about two years later, basically, which I didn't expect, where I didn't expect to be, um, and uh, I was in the same position, you know. So, well, you know, it's a, it's a fabulous thing for for writers. Um, I don't know how fabulous it is for the society as a whole or the economy as a whole, but um, I think that uh, you know they they did set their kind of stall out to um, to kind of be a, a sort of um, to promote Irish culture, to promote Ireland as a sort of cultural kind of sort of um, powerhouse basically uh and to you know to build on its sort of traditions and all that so um i can see why why they didn't i can see why it made sense to um to people there um whether it's you know socially it makes any sense at all in, in broader terms I, I don't know yeah i was just going to say what, what are your next projects all right yeah sorry simon yeah um i'm um i'm lovely i'm writing kind of season two of crime based based on the book the long nights which is out so it's quite interesting to um you know, you kind of, you know, you 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 think to yourself, well, because um, you know, a lot of the long, the great thing about a novel is you can just go anywhere, you know. And I've got like a lot of the long, some of the long nights was kind of set in Tehran and all that after the you know the the kind of Iranian Revolution and stuff like that, you know. And it's like um, you think to yourself, well, I mean, um, you're not going to be, you know, you're not going to have the budget to shoot this in Tehran. Basically, like so, you have to sort of um, you start making these kind of adaptations, and you start thinking, well, we're not going to be able to have all this number of characters, and we're not going to be able to have this mad sort of kind of set piece of the, or this set piece. So you you do kind of start thinking about the practicalities of it uh, and how you can tell a, a kind of an inter an interesting story televisually. Um, and you know, it's, it's not. It's also the the other thing is as well is that. Um, some of the actors in season one were brilliant, you know. So you don't want you want to give them something to do, 
basically. You want to give, you want to develop their characters. So, so television, you know, it has a different identity. It starts to have a different identity to the world you've created. You know, your televisual uh, world of crime is very different to the becomes very different to the Long Knives world of crime, and you have to kind of respect both. Uh, but it is quite an interesting thing. Uh, and I'm also, um, you know, I've got the, I've got the book out as well. Uh, I've done a, I've written a novella for um, John King and Alan Warner. We're doing our Seal Club thing. We did one uh, just during lockdown, which was was a great thing to do. Uh, so I've done, a, I've written another one, which is very, um, a very kind of sort of, um, sort of raucous kind of Scottish story, really. Um, and uh, we're doing the train spotting musical. I've written all the songs with my uh, music partner Steve Mack. Um, we've done all the songs for the train spotting musical. We've kind of we're going to record them as an album, uh, and um, we've uh, we've got a you know we've got a really good cast and we've developed uh, the book. And so we're just really with uh, with Phil McIntyre. We're just really looking now for the theatres to start opening up again. You know to to you know West End. Theatre land to start opening up, and then we'll be ready to stick that in there. Um, got a couple of projects in America. Uh, one with um, one with Brett Easton Ellis, which is going to be like a, a sort of um, a kind of podcastish kind of sort of uh, uh, sequential storytelling um, thing. And uh, the other one is like a, a sort of uh, it was based on this novel that I wrote but never published because I kind of. Um, I might actually republish it or rewrite it, but it just seemed to me to be more of a kind of, a, you know, a screenplay, basically, or, or a set of screenplays than an actual novel. It just came across more uh, visually to me, you know, so I thought, well, let's let's get it as a, as a TV project. So looking at that, um, Dean and I are doing um, a sort of uh, a Berlin show with Jonas Ackerland, who's a, you know, a old parliaments and a really great director of what what room for years so we're kind of working on this it's kind of basically about the development of um, techno music in germany and about the sort of um the fall of the berlin wall you know and this leading up to love parade and all that so that's the kind of era that interests me a lot uh so yeah just going 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 with that as well just a few projects. I did read an interview with you a few years ago where you said you're too busy to do fucking podcasts, but we are thrilled that you made space to speak to us. Wishing you all the very best with everything going forward, and thanks again. Thanks a lot, guys. Cheers. That was the Always Take Notes interview with Evan Welsh. He's on Twitter and Instagram at irvinwelsh and irvin.welsh, respectively. And his latest book, The Long Knives, is published by Jonathan Cape. We wanted to draw your attention to our crowdfunding page on Patreon. If you've been enjoying Always Take Notes, please do consider supporting us there. It helps us to keep the podcast going. If you support us on Patreon, you can get a great selection of rewards, including a shout out on the show and a selection of successful magazine pictures. If you pledge $10 a month, you also get a free two-month trial to Otter, worth $26, alongside the other rewards. Otter offers automated transcription and live note-taking for in-person and virtual meetings. I found it to be a huge help when organising interview material. Thanks again for supporting Always Take Notes. Hello, it's us again. Simon, what was your takeaway from the interview with Evan? I really enjoyed, not for the first time on the podcast, unpacking the experience of having a kind of massive zeitgeist-defining book, um, particularly what it was like 
dealing with transporting. And I thought also when he talked about the whole kind of difficult second album syndrome and, and trying to follow that up, uh, I think he said he, he tried to like produce a novel in which he just photocopied his gas bills or something at, at one stage and how he had to get reined in with that. So I thought he spoke very candidly about that. I was also fascinated by the whole fact that he doesn't have a literary agent, which I think I, I was, um, you know, we love to get into this kind of nitty gritty conversation. And I thought that, you know, a novelist of his stature, but also the fact that he just had experience with contracts from his, I think his work in, in local government. And so just, just went it alone. Although his point, which was just like, always ask for more money till they say stop, I think is a, a sound one that our listeners should follow what about you yes i was um astounded by his creative output today after a hit like train spotting probably never had to work again but the fact that he has so many things on the go was I thought, admirable and yes enjoyed hearing about how he uh, puts himself in the shoes of his unpleasant protagonists and does a, a realistic job of of uh creating their voice and i can't wait to see train spotting as a musical personally uh, what have you been up to, Simon? I have been doing magazine stuff mostly. So um, the kind of closing bits with this big 1843 story of getting the fact-checking responses back in and then going and doing final interviews and um, just pulling it together in the next few days and having to, to get it down to length. So um, business as usual, but it's been good. What about you, Rachel? Look forward to reading it. I have a piece coming out this week, in fact, about A24, um, a production and distribution company. And also a friend of the podcast, Tom Rowley, formerly of The Economist, has found a premises for his new independent bookshop in in southwest London. So we'll be keeping an eye on that. Um, I think he's doing some crowdfunding now to make sure it's kitted out with all the nicest things. So any listeners in that area that would like to support him, I'm sure he'd, he'd uh, welcome it. I would definitely second that. Tom Rowley, the, the nicest man in journalism, is now the, uh, the nicest man in, in bookselling. <laughs> anyway, this has been Always Take Notes, hosted by me, Simon Akam. And me, Rachel Lloyd. Our producer and social media editor is Artemis Irvin. Our score is by Jess Danheiser. And our graphic design is by James Edgar. If you'd like to follow us on social media, we're on Instagram at Always Take Notes. We're on Twitter at Take Notes Always. If you'd like to support our crowdfunding page on Patreon, we're under Always Take Notes. And if you'd like to leave a review on iTunes or get in touch with us via our website, please do. Many thanks. Goodbye.